So tonight we're carrying on with the Ten Paramis, or the Requisites for Enlightenment, and taking a look at the second Parami, which is that of virtue. Uh, This can be the perfection of sila, or moral or ethical conduct. And this is where we use all actions, all all of our speech, we become inclusive of uh, this in our spiritual practice. It's where we develop a seamlessness in practice. So our practice is not just limited to meditation on the cushion, but actually is a part of everything we do and say in our lives. And through the perfection of virtue, we're really looking to this to be for the highest good, the highest good of liberation for the benefit of all beings everywhere. As we do the practice of meditation, we begin to see how essential the inclusion of virtue or sila is. As we sit down and meditate, If in the past we've done things that we have a lot of regret or remorse about, they tend to come back, haunt us. We can be, you know, extremely agitated over times when we've yelled at people, said, you know, harmful, hurtful things, or when we acted in really unskillful ways and caused pain in the world around us. We've begin to see how it's just impossible for the mind to concentrate when those past um, words, actions are haunting us. Bhikkhu Bodhi has a description of the spiritual path in which he likens it to a tree and the different components that a tree needs. So first there's the seed, and this he likens to faith on our journey, where faith uh, brings about that initial motivation, that sense of uh, possibility. And faith really nourishes us through the whole journey. It keeps us going. We, We find a deepening sense of faith unfolds. And then he likens virtue to the roots of the tree. These roots are what gives grounding to the tree, enables it to uh, grow, to be supported. And then he likens concentration to the trunk of the tree, which gives it strength and stability. Wisdom he likens to the branches which yield the, flowers of enlighten- uh, yield the flowers of enlightenment and the fruits of deliverance. And so if we take this model of the tree, we can really understand the importance of virtue, that it's really the roots out of which uh, everything else can unfold. And if our roots are weak and shaky, there's not enough of a foundation. And we'll find that, you know, we don't make progress in our practice, that we keep getting caught in um, difficult mind states. We find that we can never grow into this flowering of wisdom in the fruits of deliverance. In the Buddhist teachings, we find the components of virtue defined in the Noble Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Again, pointing to the importance of taking care with what we do and say in our lives. And we also find it as the first of the three trainings, the three trainings being uh, sila, samadhi, and panya. 
sila, the cultivation of moral ethical conduct, samadhi, uh, the cultivation of the mind, um, and panya, wisdom. But sila being the basis for the unfolding of this. And I find that sila is very much like what I mentioned last week when I was speaking about generosity, in that for many of us it may not have been why we started doing Buddhist practice, taking to heart the teachings, that we weren't maybe attracted to come and listen to talks on sila. And in fact, I remember back to my own first retreats, and it was many times when I would hear about sila, that would be the, the talks when I would have a tendency to fall asleep, you know, because I, you know, I was there to be liberated, to be free. And again, not having any realization of any understanding of how tied up sila, virtue, is with liberation. Sila is said to point towards the natural conduct of a Buddha or an awakened one. How one naturally responds when um, compassion is present, when wisdom is present. And this is easy to see in one way because we know when we care about others, uh, when there's kindness, when we're inclusive of others, that we don't want to cause harm, that there's a genuine concern. And through that, we take care with our words and actions. The virtuous heart is present when we live well and in harmony with all life. It's really where our essential goodness is allowed to shine forth, where the heart is naturally radiant and pure and not covered over by our habituated tendencies that are often based in greed, hatred, and delusion. We can understand the importance of virtue when we just look at our own experience and what it is like when we have done harmful, hurtful things, how we feel, what the effect is in both mind and body, the weight that these actions carry, how we move into states of where the mind is constricted, where there's tightness, where uh, we just don't feel good about ourselves. And we can also look at how uh, we experience things when virtue is present when we act in wholesome ways, when our words carry kindness, our actions carry kindness and caring, and what happens then in the body and mind, how there is joy that is present, how there is a lightness of being that is present, how there is a sense of uprightness in the body, uprightness in the mind, a sense of integrity, purpose. We find that out of a virtuous mind, there's a growing sense of confidence. And it's, you know, almost as if we stand on our virtue. It becomes a refuge. We're not so confused by how to respond in life. We work with the purification of virtue, both in our inner world and our outer world. Inwardly, we begin to pay attention to our inclinations. And our inclinations are born out of past conditioning, uh, the fruition of past karma. 
Sometimes we'll find that our inclinations are wholesome, are based in loving kindness, compassion, care, and sometimes they're based in unwholesome habits. And so we learn through our practice to pay attention to these inclinations as they arise. And in paying attention to these inclinations, we can then begin to see what do we want to act on, what is worthy of uh, planting seeds of, you know, seeds of loving kindness, seeds of compassion, seeds of wisdom, equanimity. And what is really unwholesome? What do we want to just stop from doing? And so it's only when we really begin to pay attention to these inclinations that we will begin to see that we can uh, you know, pay close enough attention that we don't have to act out each inclination. Through this, we can really learn to protect virtue, to cease to uh, fuel that which is unwholesome and really protect that which is wholesome. We can also purify virtue through the undertaking of the precepts. You know, the five precepts, which five training guidelines that the Buddha gave, which in a few minutes I will uh, speak about more in depth. But, you know, these five guidelines are really the basis for anyone for uh, living a life in calling forth happiness, harmony, peacefulness. Uh, basis of living a life of non-harming. And these precepts help to give us a supportive framework in which to live, to, to have guidelines to know what is going to be helpful in the expression of our words and actions. They also give us kind of uh, a framework, guidelines for inquiring into our mind, our mind, the volition of mind, mind states, in a way that will help to guide us to the upholding of these precepts. The purification of virtue is strengthened by uh, by not transgressing. And this is in turn supported by the strength of energy and resolve we have in the living up to the upholding of these precepts. I recently came across a prayer from Buddhist teachings. Without a vow for the future from now on, there is no purification. So I make the vow for the future from now on that even of the cost of my life, I will do no negative action. I was really touched by that even at the cost of my life, I will do no negative action. That's big. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. And, you know, maybe it's something that we can only hold the intention to aspire to. And when we look at, you know, many of the words of the Buddha, so many times he spoke about um, the dangers of unwholesome actions, the, the states that those lead to, unwholesome actions lead to, and the encouragement to let go of anger, hatred, ill will. And then when we take it to the level of this prayer, at even the cost of our lives. I had a dream recently that just reminded me that I have to live with whatever I do in my life. 
And sometimes it can, you know, be painful, you know, what we've done in our lives. And sometimes it will be really uplifting and inspiring to reflect back on the wholesome actions that we have done. And then we find, through working with the purification of virtue, that even though we may have the best of intention, that there will be times when, through forgetfulness, through carelessness, we find that uh, we may have broken a precept, um, we may feel ramifications of our actions through suffering, through pain, Uh, sometimes just feeling that, experiencing that through the knot that we experience in our hearts. And at these times, it's really important that we learn to open to the pain of our actions and to be able to bring in compassion, to be able to forgive, so that we can really recommit in a wholesome way to the living of a virtuous life. I had a very good lesson about this uh, last year when I was sitting with Sayada Upandita. During the course of that retreat, at one point I made a mistake through my speech. And after having made that mistake, realizing that what I had said was unskillful, I became caught in um, berating myself, putting myself down, being really hard on myself, and um, you know, really just stuck in very painful mind states. And so after it happened, the next day I had an, inter- uh, an interview with one of the Sayadas, and you know, I asked for forgiveness, you know, I, I, I felt, I apologized, you know, um, and I, you know, continued to go on and on about <laughs> how bad I had been. <laughs> and, you know, he was very lovely. Um, and, you know, during the course of that interview, I also gave a letter to pass on to Sayada Upandita to ask for forgiveness for what I had said. And, uh, you know, and I still found myself caught up in a state of torment. And then after that, I had an interview with Sayada Upandita himself. So I went into the interview and just, you know, said, okay, I did this, it was really bad, blah, 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 blah. And um, he, he was very loving and he said, I've already forgiven you. And so when he said that, you know, I was like, okay. So I bowed, I went to get up from my interview, and then he just smiled and he looked at me and said, so what about your, your, interview, your report? And I, you know, I hadn't even thought about reporting. I'd been so caught up in what I had done. And, you know, so, okay, report. And, uh, you know, so then very quickly I looked back to what my experience had been. And what could I say about, well, there's been a lot of thinking. And this was right near the end of the retreat. So I said, well, what, you know, were you thinking about the end of the retreat? And I was like, no. Uh, so I told him I'd been thinking about what I had done and the mistakes I had made and how bad it was. And... So then he just looked at me and said, and this is why we practice. We practice so that when we make mistakes, we can see into, you know, just be with that, you know, and not from the place of tormenting ourselves further, but from the place of understanding, cultivating understanding and wisdom. And, you know, in that moment, I felt all of his great wisdom, and I felt his compassion, and it gave me the courage to forgive myself, to really let go of what I'd done, and to move on. And this is really essential in working with virtue, or we will find that we hold virtue in a tight, rigid way, that we become contorted through the holding of it, that it becomes really painful. And so it has to be supported by wisdom and compassion. 
wisdom helping us to see clearly, and the compassion helping us to be tender with the suffering that is caused when we act in non-virtuous ways. And really to remember in the working with virtue that there is the one side in that uh, we refrain from actions that are unwholesome, but also that we cultivate the wholesome, that we really learn to have wholesome motivations in our actions, what we do, what we say. And when we do so, the path of virtue really becomes a path of deepening joy. It's also a path that helps us to get in touch with the mind states that are uh, natural to the awakened mind. It becomes a place of great rejoicing. Patro Rinpoche, a great Tibetan teacher of the 1800s, says, Do not take lightly small good deeds, believing they can hardly help. For drops of water, one by one, in time, fill a giant pot. In our lives, we so often want to be helpful to do things that are going to bring about greater clarity, um, be of service to others. And as we can, one by one, to simply do wholesome actions. I'd like to share a sutta from the Buddha about the benefits of virtue. One day, Ananda asked the Buddha, What, Lord, is the benefit of virtuous ways of conduct? What is their reward? Non-remorse, Ananda, is the benefit and reward of virtuous ways of conduct. And what, Lord, is the benefit and reward of non-remorse? Non-remorse has gladness as its benefit and reward. Gladness has joy as its benefit and reward. Serenity has happiness as its benefit and reward. Happiness has concentration as its benefit and reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they really are as its benefit and reward. Knowledge and vision of things as they really are has revulsion and dispassion as benefit and reward. Revulsion and dispassion has knowledge and vision of liberation as their reward. And in this way, Ananda, virtuous ways of conduct leads step by step to the highest truth. So again, the Buddha talking about how virtue leads us step by step into the highest attainments possible for us as living beings. In the holding of sila, virtue, moral, ethical conduct in a wholesome way in our minds, I think it's helpful to know that um, the Buddha, through this, was pointing to deepening levels of living in harmony. Bhikkhu Bodhi, in his speaking about uh, sila on, in, in a book on the Eightfold Path, outlines it in this way. 
we develop harmony on a social level where there's a development of trust. People trust us and we trust them. We can see, we really see this in places like the forest refuge where when we uh, live with strong virtue, strong sila, that around us uh, a very trusting world uh, comes to be where we aren't at fear that someone's going to take our possessions, that someone's going to steal from us, that someone's going to harm us. It gives us a safe harbor in which to live. We find that there's a growing harmony on a psychological level where we feel at ease and so not not so continually caught in states of guilt and worry and regret. We're not constantly trying to defend ourselves or armor ourselves in relation to um, the world or our minds. We find that there's a deepening level of harmony on the karmic level where we're cultivating wholesome seeds and we're not perpetuating suffering. And this really can turn the whole direction of our lives around. A movement towards that which is wholesome. We also find it on the contemplative level where it helps us to uh, establish the foundation where we can cultivate the mind, which leads in turn to peace, happiness, and the freedom of heart and mind. In really helping to give rise to the purification of virtue, it is very helpful to pay attention to our motivation and to really be seeing if we can turn it towards being for the highest goodness. The Dalai Lama, when he was giving an address once said, once you have pure and sincere motivation, all the rest follows. You can develop this right attitude towards others on the basis of kindness, love, and respect, and on the clear realization of the oneness of all human beings. This is important because others benefit by this motivation as much as anything we do. Then with a pure heart, you can carry on any work, and your profession becomes a real instrument to help the community. And sila is really not a chore when we realize that it's based upon this clear realization of the oneness of all human beings. When we hurt others, we hurt ourselves. When we hurt ourselves, we hurt others. So paying attention, bringing, calling forth this highest goodness. I'd like to take a look at the characteristics, the function, the manifestation and proximate cause of virtue. And to remember that Um, All of these need to be supported by wisdom and compassion. So the characteristic of virtue is that of composing. It's, you know, where we can uh, bring all of the different components of mind into a composed manner. 
So in our words and actions, um, this becomes guided by wisdom and compassion. Wisdom, the seeing clearly, the compassion, the movement to alleviate suffering. And that helps us to really skillfully act. And it helps to bring a composure in itself into the mind. A virtuous mind is a composed mind. The function of virtue is twofold. It's to dispel moral depravity and also blameless conduct. So this means, you know, in the first event, the function is to stop misconduct, to stop doing things that are harmful. And then this has the achievement of blamelessness, where we have blameless conduct, no fault with our conduct. Its manifestation is moral purity. And this is where the radiant heart can shine unobstructed, unobscured. Shame and moral dread are said to be the proximate cause or the conditions for the arising of virtue. And shame and moral dread are also said to be the two guardians of the world. And I know, you know, if it's the first time you've heard this, it can seem quite surprising. Because when we think of moral dread, you know, it sounds like fear. Um, and, you know, we relate fear with aversion, with a hindrance. And yet, this moral dread is where, out of the fear of harming others, we take care, we bring a heedfulness into what we do and say. And so it guards the world. It guards the world from really unskillful behavior. It keeps us from you know, crime, violence, you know, really hurting others. And you know, through, through the, you know, not wanting to experience shame, um, you know, we take greater care. And so it really helps to protect the world. One way that we can notice this in our practice is there are times when we start to notice that there's a fear of not being mindful. And you know, it can happen um, that we just become very aware of what happens when we're not mindful, how we can easily do something that will create pain, will create suffering. And we don't want to do that. So there actually becomes this fear of not being mindful, which helps us to bring in more energy, vitality, and to bring more mindfulness, more continuity of mindfulness to our experience. We find that virtue counters greed hatred, and delusion through the removing of crookedness and the corruption of our words and actions. I like that description of removing crookedness because, you know, it, that is when we're, we're doing harmful things, you know, it's kind of like there's just a kink in our minds, in our actions, and it just removes that, brings that sense of uprightness again. So a really important aspect in the purification of virtue is the living, the really taking to heart the five precepts, the five guidelines that the Buddha gave. So I'd like to speak a little bit about each one to help us to take it on to explore these precepts more fully in our lives. 
it's been my own experience that when I first heard the precepts, you know, they seem very black and white. And yet the more I practiced, the more they came alive, the more they became vitally alive, and the more at times they weren't so clear, and they challenged me to look closer or to seek greater understanding, clarification. So the first precept, to refrain from killing, to refrain from taking life. And this expands beyond humans to all sentient beings. And sentient beings can be defined as living beings endowed with mind or consciousness. This precept helps us to cultivate a reverence for all life, And it helps to train our minds to let go of unwholesome mind states that are present in order to cause harm or in order to kill another living being. When we refrain, uh, we also can cultivate the wholesome, loving-kindness, compassion, where we deeply care about the welfare of other living beings. You might reflect in your own life how this precept has affected you and how you live your life. I know it's had a big impact on my own life. When I look back, you know, into my earlier years, I was born into a family that has a phobia about insects. And, you know, out of this fear of insects, there's a lot of brutality that happens. And so, you know, in my earlier years, no thought about the taking of life of any insect that could be a threat to one's existence. I also, in my life, discovered that insects love me, that I seem to have sweet tasting blood. And you know, this became very apparent when I traveled to Burma. And on one of my trips to Burma, I had ordained temporarily as a nun. And on that particular trip, this was a time when I found myself deeply challenged by this precept. That um, you know, in the place where I was living, I found I can't. I, th- I counted at one point the number of bugs that types of bugs that were biting me, and it was numerous. You know, there was little ones that you could barely see, and there'd just be kind of this little, and then swelling would appear. And there was mosquitoes, and there was these little red spiders that would bite. Um, ants would bite. And then in my bed, there was bed bugs that would bite. And these bed bugs weren't just in the bed, they were also in the furniture. And so, you know, I just found I was becoming this uh, itching mess. Uh, it was, and it was really difficult and challenging. And I would wake up in the night, you know, and just feel another. And it was really hard when I was half asleep not to just lash out, just not to annihilate that life. And yet here I was, a nun. And, you know, as a nun, you even sleep in your robes. So, you know, it was like this reminder all the time of this precept. And so, you know, I found that it took me into looking at how I lived during the day, that I didn't leave food laying around that was going to attract more bugs, that I learned to take care if I had to remove some of these bugs from my living situation, that I took care in how I did that. And so, you know, it would be a case of waking up in the night, having a little container that, you know, when there was a bed bug, I would wake up, I would find the bug, put it in the container, and then in the next morning I'd take the little bug somewhere else. And I started to notice over, the, the, uh, over time how at first this had been a really difficult practice, and yet as I paid more attention to it, 
it actually became a practice of loving kindness. That, you know, when I could see that when I would let this bug go free in the morning, there was really a wish for its well-being. Although there was somewhat of exclusion, its well-being didn't include biting me again. You know, I hadn't quite reached that stage. But that there was a caring. You know, I could do it, offer it with kindness, that it be well in the world. And so, you know, just on the level of insects, I look back on how much this precept has helped me in my life, has helped me to live in a more inclusive way, a more caring way. The Buddha defined killing um, in very specific ways. He said, there must be a being. You must know that there is a being. You must have intention to kill the being. And you must have a method or a plan to kill the being. And you must kill according to the plan. So this involves a lot around the intention in the mind to kill and actually following through on that killing. So also pointing to if there's accidental killing, that this is not a breaking of the precept. In our lives, we may find that we're faced with ethical decisions. Um, you know, where you know, if our house becomes filled with termites that are you know eating away at the foundations, what do we do? You know, how you know how do we live with this precept? And you know, it, so it, when we really start paying attention, we find that there's challenges to it. And it really points to whatever we do in our life to do it as consciously as we can. So in working with this precept, we will find that we become challenged around working with states of anger, aversion. Uh, Through practice, we learn not to throw out the energy of anger and aversion in harmful or hurtful ways. Uh, And we also have to learn to be present to these states or we'll find that we are holding this precept in a really rigid way where these mind states start to eat us up. And so we really need to learn to see into the true nature of these mind states. The second precept is to refrain from not taking uh, that which has not been freely offered. So this includes stealing, taking that which belongs to others through secrecy, robbery, uh, or forcibly taking from another. It also includes uh, not taking from another through deceitful means, fraudulence, or claiming to be one's own, that which is not, or through deceitfulness. And, you know, this can really fall into business practices where we don't use the practice of deceit or cheating customers to get something for ourselves. This precept really helps us to cultivate non-greed. To, uh, you know, it will challenge us to look at the force of greed in our mind, the force of entitlement that, you know, so often, um, you know, it may be that we don't blatantly break this precept, you know, in big ways, but, you know, many times in little ways we might take something for ourselves, which, you know, maybe is not. It's not clear that it's okay for us to have that. You know, sometimes in the workplace, the taking of office supplies doesn't seem like a big deal. And yet, you know, it it can just be um, building habits of deceit in our minds. Um, I had an experience of this uh, one time on retreat when uh, I was sitting a long retreat and um, at at one point was sitting up through the night and... um, 
on that particular evening, you know, I was sitting on a bench and the bench became very hard. And at about 12 o'clock at night, it was like just sitting on something rock hard. And the person in front of me had this piece of foam that was three inches thick. It was a really thick piece of foam. And so as I sat there, I just started to really want that piece of foam. Uh, you know, it was just like heaven sitting in front of me. And, you know, for a few hours, I worked with that wanting. And then at about three o'clock in the morning, nobody else in the hall, alone in the hall. Okay, one sitting, one sitting with this piece of foam. And, you know, she won't know, it'll be fine. So I take that piece of foam, I sit on it. And about 10 minutes later, there steps into the hall. Nope. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Could it be? No, no. You know, you're just paranoid. It won't be. So, you know, steps come walking up. They halt right beside, you know, the row that I'm in. Oh my God, it's her. It can't be. And then they continue on. Relief. It's not her. And, and then I'm sitting there, you know, continuing on in my practice. And I hear, this is over at IMS, the back of the hall, there's a little alcove where there's lots of pieces of foam and cushions and everything. So I hear someone just really barreling through, going right through that pile of whatever's there. And I think, oh my God, it's got to be her. And so at that, you know, it was strong. So I decided to look and see. And sure enough, it was her. And then it was like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do now? And I thought, okay, get up, take the piece of foam to her. So I did. I got up, took this piece of foam, tapped her on the shoulder. You know, first she's startled. She looks at me. This is, you know, 3.30 in the morning in an empty meditation hall. (laughs) I'm sure she almost had a heart attack. And then I show her the foam. And her face just lights up. (laughs) And so I give it to her. And I, you know, rather shamefacedly go back to my cushion. And I sat down. And we see how these actions affect our practice. (laughs) For the rest of the night, practice shot. For the rest of the day, practice shot. For the rest of the next day, practice shot. Even at the end of the retreat, I had to go up and say something to her. You know, I was so mortified by my actions. And you know, this is really little, probably, in comparison to what we can do when uh, we really have that sense of entitlement. And yet, you know, it really showed me how powerful it is and how painful it can be. And how, you know, she suffered, I suffered. We both suffered out of this. And when we really cultivate non-greed, we cultivate (coughs) contentment. Living with enough. It's such a different way of life than living with wanting. Can we live with what we have as being enough? It's just simple right there. And the way we counter this compulsion to take, this greed, is through the opposite, which is generosity. So calling forth generosity in our lives, helping us to cultivate contentment and not taking what is not freely offered. The third precept being to abstain from sexual misconduct. And, you know, as we all know, sex, sexual energy, is a very strong force in our lives. Look at the number of people in the world. You know, we all get through the same energy, the same driving force. Actually, I I was reading something recently that kind of... um, brought this to light, how, how it is a, a very powerful energy. Um, it was, a monk was saying this, not a scientist, so I'm, you know, just to say that. Um, he said, humans are more sensitive to sexual stimulation than any other living being. Um, and if you've ever watched nature programs and seen, nature programs are just filled with mating, with birth, with death, you know, and, and then when I heard that, it was like, wow, you know, because I always think of animals, um, nature as being just so filled with this force, 
and it is. But it's, you know, in animals, they have a period, it's periodic and seasonal, this um, sexual stimulation. And this monk was going on to say, with humans, it's continual. And, you know, it just kind of put things into perspective that, oh, yeah, this is something big. This isn't little. And, you know, often it, um, we, so many people experience states of ge- deep guilt over having lustful thoughts, over this strong sexual energy that we so often feel. And yet, you know, it's in the makeup of this body-mind. Uh, I was walking with a friend just the other day, and she said, sometimes being a human being is so hard, there's something just in the wiring that is a setup. And, you know, that's a part of our wiring that we have around this sexual energy, this desire to reproduce. And so, you know, it needs a lot of consciousness brought to it, or we simply act out of this um, drive, and then we act out in un- really unskillful ways. You know, whether it can be rape, it can be uh, child molesting, um, or where we just don't bring care and love to this energy, and then it becomes very painful, very harmful. And so it's really bringing this sexual energy into consciousness, to be able to see it from the place of wisdom. And during retreat, when we refrain from sexual activity, it helps us to really become conscious around this, to be able to see this energy, to know it. You know, I remember when I was young, and there could be very strong sexual energy in relation to another person, and I think they were my soulmate. You know, it would be so strong that there'd be this sense that it meant we were to be together forever. And then, you know, if we pay attention, we see it's an arising energy. It's subject to impermanence, just like everything else. It will, you know, as conditions change, it will pass away. And, you know, we can just live a lot wiser. And it's a lot more freeing. So this precept, helping to take us into a place of really responsibly relating with others, and especially around uh, this sexual energy, this driving energy that we so often experience. The fourth precept, to refrain from false speech, speech that is false, frivolous, harmful, idle chatter, the power of speech being so evident in the world, you know, just knowing when someone yells at us, how painful. How when we yell at someone, painful. How when we speak in a way that brings about unification, peace, harmony, that can be very inspiring for ourselves, for another person. It can bring about that deep ease of well-being. We can do a lot of good through learning to speak that which is true, youthful, truthful, uh, and helpful. Mm. It's interesting to look at our motivations when we're speaking falsehood. What's driving us? Why are we doing this? You know, so often we speak um, falsehoods maybe out of wanting to get something, uh, wanting to get more, or we might speak it out of hatred, of wanting to cause harm to another, or we can speak it through delusion, where we might be uh, compulsively lying, or we might uh, think that if we exaggerate just a little bit, it will be more interesting. Or we might be doing this through um, speaking a falsehood in the form of trying to make a joke that is a lie. And the effects of lying can be that others don't trust us. It can also be that we start to believe our own falsehoods and become confused 
or that others become confused about their own perceptions. And so a lot of uh, delusion comes through speaking falsehoods. We really perpetuate delusion. On retreat, we, in one way, even though we're using um, noble speech as our mode around speech, we still learn to work with this precept, becoming mindful of our thoughts, because these thoughts so often turn into speech. And so by learning to be mindful of thoughts, we can be mindful of, you know, often what is so much idle chatter in the mind. And... learning just to be able to note that, to let go, to not have to keep saying all of these things that, you know, are just frivolous thoughts that pass through the mind. We also learn to become aware of the mind states that color our speech. You know, so often when anger is coloring consciousness, if we aren't mindful, we would speak angry words. But if we learn to be mindful of that state, then we learn that we don't have to act it out. And the last of the precepts is to refrain from the use of intoxicants that cause heedlessness. And through the use of intoxicants, often the mind becomes more clouded, dull, and it becomes very easy to do things that cause harm. It's also important in working with this precept to not, uh, to really look at what drives us to want to use intoxicants. It, you know, it can be through greed, the wanting of a better mind state, you know, the, where we don't have the capacity to be with the pain, the suffering that's going on. It can be through aversion, not liking our experience. And, you know, it's very important to look at what fuels us to want to use intoxicants. And this precept also helps us to learn to care for our body and mind. In the purification of virtue, we also find right livelihood added. Um, so this is where you know how we care for ourselves in the world is done with that consideration for the welfare of all beings, where we have a livelihood that where we can be upright, honest, and that it doesn't. Um, lead to harm or suffering for others. The Buddha specifically spoke about avoiding dealing in weapons, in living beings, in slaughterhouse and prostitution, meat production and butchery, and in poisons and intoxicants. So looking to how we provide for ourselves in the world, that it too is fully embraced in our spiritual practice. Through sila, through virtue, we learn to live in harmony. We learn to um, take care in what we do, what we say. That all of this be done for the welfare and liberation of all beings. The purification of sila helps us to refine and strengthen our awareness to take us to the highest truth. I'd like to close with a quote um, from the treatise on, on the Paramis. And it wasn't clear to me in this quote whether it was something the Buddha actually said or whether it just came um, through the commentaries. Even the water of the Ganges 
cannot wash away the stain of hatred, yet the water of virtue is able to do so. Even yellow sandalwood cannot cool the fever of lust, yet virtue is able to remove it. Virtue is the unique adornment of the good, surpassing the adornments cherished by ordinary people, such as necklaces, royal crowns, and earrings. It is a sweet-scented fragrance, superior to incense, as it pervades all directions and is always in place. A supreme, magical spell which wins the homage of deities, a means for achieving the jhana and the direct knowledges, a highway leading to the great city of Nibbana, the foundation for the enlightenment of disciples and perfectly enlightened Buddhas, and as a means for the fulfillment of all one's wishes and desires, it surpasses the tree of plenty and the wish-fulfilling gem. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the benefits of virtue leading to the highest happiness. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration.
ashes quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind, with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.